You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. On this week's episode, I start with a featured look at the movie Time, directed by Garrett Bradley. Time is the remarkable chronicle of a remarkable woman, Fox Rich, and her long fight to see her husband who's been in jail for 20 years. I spoke with the wonderful Amy Taubin about the movie, which is one of the year's best. Then, on the second half of the episode, I look at a terrific collection of 1970s horror, which is available to stream from the Criterion channel. My guests for that discussion are Beatrice Loiza and Christina Newland, who talk with me about the pleasures and the politics of these movies. It's a mix of better and lesser-known titles, including Death Dream, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, George Romero's The Crazies, and Deathline, a movie partly set in the London underground. But first, here's time. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We're going to focus on a single film. And uh, if you've seen it already, or uh, if you're going to see it, you'll, you'll know why, because it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary one. Uh, it is called Time. It's directed by Garrett Bradley, uh, who's a filmmaker who's made a number of shorts before this, including America, as well as a feature Below Dreams. For me, it's just a, a wonderful thing to be able to see this movie out in the world in a way that anyone across the country, and I guess internationally, could see it because it is on Amazon. In order to discuss this movie, um, I'm very pleased to be joined by Amy Taubin. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Nick. I'm very pleased to be here. We might have talked about this a little already. At Sundance. At Sundance, Yeah. Um, and you've you've actually spoken with uh, Garrett Bradley a few a couple I've times. I've spoken with Garrett, I think, twice. Actually, spoken, and then I had a long email exchange with her when I was writing my art forum piece, uh, and she was really helpful because it's not only time, the movie, but she also has an installation coming up at the Museum of Modern Art in the middle of November. It's a three-channel version of her short 25-minute film, America. And the three-channel version of America is even more of a knockout than just the one-channel version. I I wondered if she's the only person uh, that that I can think of who has both a movie on, uh, you know, Amazon Prime and one-woman installation at MoMA. Yeah, I mean, what I thought when I first saw this, and I think I saw it, I think someone sent it to me just before I went to Sundance. And I looked at it, and what I was so surprised at at Sundance was how many people thought it was a great film, and it won, you know, the directing prize. And it wasn't in Frontier, which is Sundance's version of experimental outcastville. It was in the main doc category. This film certainly is not like any documentary that you see. It's really like an, in quotes, experimental film. I actually talked to Garrett a bit about that specifically because Time is partly financed by the New York Times, by that project they have to produce movie image works. And one of Garrett's early short films was also financed by the Times. And so she said, since it's the Times 
and there a paper that does journalism. I had to have the conversation with them about what a documentary is and what a nonfiction movie would be in relation to journalism, that it's not necessarily journalism and that, you know, you're not going to know throughout this film what time it is in the sense of what year or what day or what follows what or causal connections. And that was really interesting. And of course, you made the film where you don't know what time it is. And everyone loved it. Yeah, that's I mean, that's really fascinating to hear because, yeah, it is a movie where it's not giving you datelines. It's not setting up clips. Time is basically it has two strands to it that are constantly weaving in and out of each other. One is a, a, a chronicle of Fox Rich. She's a, a mother of six. She's also... She owns a car dealership in someplace in Louisiana. It's hard to tell if this is a one-off car dealership or it's a franchise, but that's what she does. She is a successful businesswoman. Yeah, one of the clips is her recording a, a commercial for, for, for the dealership, um, where she's basically directing the commercial as well. So it's a chronicle of a stretch in her life of 20 years while her husband is in prison. They robbed a bank, or they attempted to rob a bank. And she says, you know, they were young and desperate. They had, I think at that point, two kids, and they had opened a shop to sell hip-hop gear, and they were over their head with bills. And they, you know, had this harebrained scheme. And she says at one point she was she drove the getaway car, in quotes, and she was sitting in the car and she knew that it was the stupidest thing they'd ever done. This is just the factual stuff, and you learn this throughout this film that is one hour and 21 minutes. You don't learn it all in once or in order, but you piece it together that she got a sentence of 12 years, but she got out in three and a half. And part of the reason she got out in three and a half is somehow she got pregnant again. I mean, she went to jail pregnant. Um, and then she got pregnant again by Rob, and they just let her go in three and a half years. But it was a ridiculous sentence for this kind of failed robbery where she did nothing but sit in the getaway car. But Rob, his lawyer, they had separate lawyers, also offered him a deal for 12 years, but his lawyer told him not to take it. And the judge was so angry that he didn't take this deal that he sentenced him to 60 years. And the reason that gave her hope and allowed her to keep trying to work for his release was that the sentence was so outlandish in relation to the crime. I mean, it's one of those possibilities that a judge can hand you 60 years for a failed robbery when it's the first crime you've ever committed. I mean, she says at some point, this being Louisiana and the judge being a total racist and being very angry because Rob wouldn't accept 12 years, uh, he just threw the book at him. Right. Yeah. That's one of the many, like, really powerful moments in, in the movie where she just, she just, yeah, she says 60 years of human life. Just putting it that way, you know, the, the way she says it just kind of drives home how ludicrous it is that sort of one person can have that kind of dominion 
over someone else. She, he's in prison during the movie while she is on the phone a lot, you know, to secretary and, and a clerk to try to figure out when he's going to be able to release and, and the, the process behind that while she's also just, you know, managing her, her household and her family. And being an activist. And being uh, an activist, Because absolutely. she's a really important and powerful activist for this organization called Friends and Families of Our Incarcerated Children which is a Louisiana organization for exactly what it says. And there's this, this amazing moment when she explains how you get from year to year. And every year she would get on the phone and talk to the people who might do something to end this sentence. And she basically learned that if, you, if it hasn't happened by Thanksgiving, It's not going to happen that year. And so you have to start every new year afresh, believing that it will happen in this new year. And she goes through 20 years like that. And maybe partly as a, as a kind of coping method, but also, I guess, just as a, a, a letter, an ongoing kind of letter and record to Robert, she keeps a home video journal about where she's at about you know her thoughts and about her, her children and, and, and their kind of milestones as well. And that is the twin kind of half of the movie that is just kind of woven together. And the fascinating thing about how the movie was made is that it was not actually conceived this way originally. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, she was shooting with Fox Rich. And, you know, at, at some point, Fox Rich presented her with this pile of just videotapes uh, and then that completely turned the movie into into something else, and that is amazing for me because so much of this movie is Fox Rich's like voice and presence and, and force of personality and and, and courage and, and all of that that you just feel. I don't think you can look at this film as anything except a collaborative work mm-hmm. uh, between these two women, and I mean it's all Fox in the sense that it's Fox's diaries. And it's also Garrett's representation, a video of Fox following her. And there's another camera in here. Garrett told me that at least one of her sons started using the video camera to shoot her when she was, you know, out in public and she does a lot of organizing and a lot of lecturing. And he started shooting her when he was eight years old. And, you know, you can see that early stuff that the camera, it's just a little bit of it is very shaky. And then later on he gets better. But really, when I looked at this movie again, it is so fluid that just like you don't distinguish when something is happening in relation to something else, you also don't distinguish who's shooting. I mean, Fox's video that she made on, you know, some HD 90s camera is pretty recognizable. I mean, it's like one of those Sadie Benning films where she has pixel vision in the middle of everything else. And it's great because when they bumped it up, They didn't bother to do the thing, you know, all video. If you look at your TV right now, you will notice that people's faces have black lines around them, but they're very, very narrow now. 
I mean, they're managing to get rid of that relationship between the thing that's in focus and in moving, which is someone's face usually, and the background. But at that point, the line was so thick that it kind of looks like the image is rotoscoped. Hmm. It doesn't look like, you know. Yeah. So that's clear. You can distinguish that. But still, the movie is completely seamless. And it's it's not also not a movie where you get lost or you don't feel lost, even though it's it's moving around in, in time. And also it's not using the footage. They're not like citations or, or quotes or like examples of this or that. They I mean, they mark time and they make you aware of it. But it's not like and then this is where this is when the, the kid was in kindergarten or this is when this happened. It, it's really just, yeah, as you say, it's seamlessly mingled in. It reminds me of one thing I think I saw uh, in an interview uh, with Garrett Bradley. The movie she was envisioning originally, she was trying to show all the different aspects of um, Fox Rich's life that the experience of her husband being incarcerated affected. So just every aspect of her life. And when I see it, you know, mingled with the home movie footage, it's like what was originally she was trying to show in terms of like all the places and sites in life. It's Mm -hmm. now just showing how it's in time. It's across every second in her life. And something that Garrett is really involved with is the relationship of image and sound. I mean, America is this way, too. The three-channel America has the most incredible soundtrack because the three-channel America is kind of like a space capsule. It's like everything has been captured from a separate time. Well, let's stay with time for the moment. She uses music incredibly well. And for time, she found this piano piece on YouTube that was a recording by a 96-year-old Ethiopian nun who hadn't recorded this when she was 96. She had rec- She's now 96, or she must be 97 by now. But she had recorded this in 1968, and it was the only recording she ever made, and she made it for the purpose of some charity. And she had been a prisoner in the Second Italian-Ethiopian War, and she had been imprisoned on an Italian island, and she was then a teenager, And she was taught piano there by a classical Italian teacher of piano. But the music is very interesting because it sounds in part like Debussy. I mean, it's that kind of impressionistic piano that is really in a rush, you know, like, Mm. and it gathers the image into this rush of time. And then at certain points, And every time Fox does this thing where she calls to find out if there's any news about Rob and she's calling the offices of the governor and she's calling the offices of a judge, the music stops dead and she just sits there. And in a film that moves so much, those passages without music and pretty much without visual motion Could you just watch this person holding on the phone and trying to be very nice talking to whoever comes onto the phone? And at one point she says, should I call you his secretary? And she's kind of tries to be chatty and polite. 
And this happens like four times in the film. And everything stops at that moment. And you can just feel what the pit of her stomach must feel like as she hangs on that phone. But the music, besides being kind of like Debussy and impressionistic, it also sounds kind of like ragtime. And so it specifically sounds like a piece by Debussy called Gollywog's Cakewalk. Debussy wrote six piano pieces for children, and one of them is Gollywog's Cakewalk. And the cakewalk, I mean, this is incredibly racist. The Gollywog is a figure that a lot of black artists have been using. And it was one of those really horrible characters about how happy children were in slavery on plantations. And I never talked to Garrett about that. But it's clear in this music that this woman is referencing that particular piece of music. So that's wild. And I need to email her and ask her about that. Yeah, that's in- <laughs> that is incredible. I mean, the, the sense of the music, there's a lightness to it. And, uh-huh. and, that's, and that happens very early. And it actually upended my expectation of the movie because... We've all seen documentaries that start off with some personal home movie footage where, where someone is saying something hopeful about the future, uh, and then like the, the hammer kind of drops after that um, mm-hmm. as you see what actually is happening. Because this movie opens with home movie footage of Fox it's just kind of anticipating when she's finally going to be able to see her husband and showing off how she's got a belly from being pregnant. I mean, what Garrett told me the first time I talked to her was that She was interested in putting together these two women, Fox, and her first name is Emma Hoy, and I really cannot say her last name. It's a really complicated name, and I'm ashamed that I can't say it. But she was interested in putting together Fox and Emma Hoy because they both had experiences of incarceration, and that Emma Hoy's music spoke to this experience of her incarceration and surviving it. Since you mentioned the scene where that music disappears, uh, which is when she's on the phone trying to get any information, and you're absolutely right, things come to a stop there, and, and they really just capture the sense of waiting. I won't say powerlessness entirely, because she's really fighting for it. So, I mean, she has her own power, which is her own, you know, um, persistence and tenacity and being able to hold in everything she must be feeling while she's having to be polite. And chatty. And chatty. It's just incredible. I just, but ultimately she's, she's still, and I, I was really struck just, I think those are some of the longest takes in the movie. Yeah. So her sitting there on the phone, um, and maybe she'll cut away to one of her sons who's also just waiting. And, and, and there you have it, which is just that mm-hmm. they're waiting. Their life is on hold because of this uh, situation that's been put upon them and put upon Robert. It's, it's like a combination of waiting and also a combination of labor. Uh, there's the, the emotional labor of it and, and just like, I don't know, bureaucratic labor of having to call multiple times a day or a week or a month and, and this being just a part of your routine. Yep. And then I just want to mention, as you said, she's an activist precisely about these issues. And she gives these speeches, which are so eloquent and just build to these magnificent crescendos that express the frustration, rage of the situation. And one of them is that she would, she just says like, she's never, ever, ever going to be put in this situation again. 
where she gives up, has to give up her freedoms. And she's talking partly just about being in jail herself, but it just puts in kind of a stark outline the effect that incarceration is and what it means and the, and the absolute revocation of freedom. And another point, she compares it to slavery and, 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 and time, slavery times. That families could be separated by incarceration as they had been in slavery time. Right, right. Which reminds me of uh, actually a line from uh, an interview you did uh, with uh, Garrett Bradley that, you know, what she ultimately wants is for the fa- her family to love one another in freedom. Yeah. You know, that's exactly it. Well, the film has a happy ending because <laughs> Rob gets out. Mm-hmm. And she's planned this, that she's going to pick him up in a limo and that the kids will be there, but they're going to get into the back seat. And, and Garrett and the person who was shooting for her that day was in the limo and they had a deal worked out that if things started getting heavy between Rob and Fox, she would ask permission to keep shooting. That was when I realized that there were multiple people with Garrett doing camera. Hmm. I mean, Garrett was doing some camera herself, but she also had other people doing camera. And so the fact that this could be so seamless, like the way memory is seamless, I mean, the whole thing takes place in Fox's memory, no matter who has shot it, you have access to this kind of synchronicity of memory until there's this release into the present at the end, which is when he's freed and they can touch. And those scenes at the end when he hugs each kid and they kind of rock back and forth, that's just incredible. I mean, when you realize what you've seen in close-ups, because most of the film is close-ups of single people, except when Fox is lecturing, or sometimes the kids and Fox are in the apartment together. But so much of this is just her. And you have some other shot that comes into this. (laughs) Yes. uh, And that's the kind of keystone or, or capstone to the whole thing. Um, it's a shot that you see earlier. At that point, it seems like one of many memories. Um, and it's brought back here at, at the end. And what she does, though, before it is quite amazing, she plays some of the home movies in reverse. It, it took me a beat to, to, to realize, I mean, once you see a, a clip of one of the children kind of jumping uh, uh-huh. back onto a bunk bed, I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, these are, these are going in reverse. And it's almost, it's, there's sort of an effect of like rewinding a life and just your kind of life flashing before you a little bit. And then something just wonderful happens where it, it, it goes back, 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 back until it ends with the image, which was earlier already, which is just of Fox and Robert kissing in the car. And, you know, Amy, as, as you pointed out, that's a, when you first see that, you kind of, earlier in the movie, you wonder, oh, is this, where is this? Is this shot after he's already out? Or but the way it's placed here, you realize that all of this leads back, you know, all of this, the, the, the dedication, the, the, the love, the persistence, the holding on. It's like, this is the kiss that kind of sealed it, you know? Like, that's what you cling to, and, and that's the bond, just in a shot. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful moment. And just the, the alchemy of this particular uh, movie is, is unique. 
I just wanted to read one thing that Lisa Kennedy wrote a piece in the New York Times that was so wonderful about this film. Yes. And one of the things she wrote was that in the sweep of Bradley's epic vision, Fox Rich is both Penelope and an Odysseus for America's dark odyssey. Uh, because this is her saga, not her husband. She's the steadfast mate and the heroic traveler, making her way through the chop and around the shoals of mass incarceration. And I thought that was amazing to think of her as both Penelope and Odysseus. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's kind of a mic drop moment there. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, not an underdog figure, but literally the the hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the central central voice of it. I love that. Yeah, and then it's all and it's all knitted back together at the end. Well, yeah, that seems like a wonderful way to end, and yeah, a wonderful piece by by Lisa Kennedy. All right, well, I guess we can leave it at that. It's time, Garrett Bradley, and it's uh it's on Amazon, so you should go and watch it right now if you have have not already. And Amy, thank you so much for talking about the film. Thank you, Nick, for asking me to talk about this movie, which is wonderful. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. We're going to be talking about... 70s horror, thanks to a very strong collection at the Criterion channel that we've all been watching as, in some cases, a, uh, I guess, perverse escape from the other horrors of life. And joining me for the discussion, very pleased to have again, uh, Beatrice Loiza. Welcome. Hello. I'm glad to be part of this horror talk. I have been really enjoying this Criterion collection. It's a collection, I guess. I, I I was just saying I was a little skeptical of because it's like 70s horror. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, <laughs> tell me more. But I think they made some very good picks that also echo among themselves. And it turns out we're not the only ones watching this batch of movies. And I'm very pleased to have Christina Newland. Welcome. Hi. Christina, what have you been uh, up to lately? Yeah, I should get better at introducing myself. Uh, yeah, I'm a... <laughs> It was very succinct. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a freelance film critic and writer for various publications, BBC, Vice, Sight and Sound, and um, my first book came out earlier this year, uh, an edited anthology of women and non-binary writers on the subject of female desire and cinema. She Found It at the Movies is the title. Um, so that can be uh, got online, um, and we'll link to that. We can just sort of dive into things here. I think one thing that, that jumps out about the series, uh, you know, they there are many familiar faces uh, in there. George Romero uh, and, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there. And then also, you know, put alongside them some lesser known titles or even lesser known titles from them, like Romero's uh, The Crazies, for one thing. Christina, you were interested in a particular strand in the film's undertone or backbeat or haunting echo, whatever you want to call it, uh, that keeps coming up, you know, by virtue of their being made uh, in in the 70s. You know, anyone who is, I think, even sort of interested in the Vietnam War and in that era knows that this had profound effects on the sort of national psyche and that that kind of was writ large all over cinema at the time and certainly not just horror cinema. 
But considering very few films were directly being made in American cinema about Vietnam, other than kind of radical documentary in the early 70s, it's very interesting to see sort of the ways in which horror was a great repository for dealing with some of the traumas of Vietnam and the generation gap in general. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, one movie I think we were all really struck with in that regard is Death Dream, which I saw had an alternate title, Dead of Night or something. Yeah. Yes. Which is actually the name of like a anthology horror, I think, like the 40s. So it's good they chose something new. Death Dream sounds like a translation of a German word. Uh, uh, it has a very like primal, uh, you know, feel to that. Uh, Death Dream, I guess I'll just give a little potted summary of, of it is about a returning Vietnam vet who everyone thought died in the war. And then it seems his mother and the family was clinging to the hope that he hadn't. It seemed to be understood that he probably had. But then lo and behold, guess who's coming to dinner? But the returning brother from the war who begins behaving oddly. What's interesting to me about this character is he might as well just be displaying like PTSD. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's just very, he's sort of sullen, having trouble being enthused about anything, wants to spend a lot of time alone, generally very troubled. But that, this being a horror movie, it kind of develops into something a little bloodier, a little more violent, because he is, he is undead, I guess is what you would, what you would say. So, I, you know, I'd seen this movie before, but revisited it last night and was just really viscerally taken by you know, not only the creepiness of having this undead Vietnam War vet return to his family home and act completely bizarre and deranged, but also, you know, there's this element of of psychodrama. The soldier, whose name is Andy's parents, the drama sort of centers on them and their reaction and, and how they're dealing with their son, who just seems to be this completely new person. John Marley and Lynn Carlin play the parents and, you know, they were also the leads in, in John Cassavetti's Faces, where they also kind of play a distressed, hyper-dramatic couple dealing with all sorts of inner turmoil. And that element of the film really grounded the trauma of the experience, just the distress of having their son actually return to them. And, you know, it seems like they're can be sort of a happy ending to this whole thing, but then like slowly realizing that things are not the same. Um, and in fact are, you know, supernaturally really awful <laughs> as it turns out. Mm. I, I think this is really one of the great early Vietnam war films like in my book. It's just like the way that it depicts the domestic impact of the Vietnam war is so affecting for me. Yeah, I think I was surprised to come into something like this, thinking that it might be quite schlocky and actually finding it to be much less scary than it was just bleak and haunting. The grief of this poor family, right, basically from the get go, when they get, you know, a letter from a serviceman knocking at the door, that dreaded sort of knock on the door, your heart immediately kind of goes out to them. And, you know, the fact that these two actors are, are in the roles as the parents really, like Beatrice said, grounds it in a kind of an emotional realism, particularly John Marley as the father. And it's sort of interesting because the film came out right around the same time as The Godfather, and he plays the, the <laughs> movie studio mogul who ends up with the horse's head in his bed, which is just kind of it was just strange um, and great films that he was in around this time. But his gruff 
manner of this old school dad who's, you know, probably greatest generation and his pride and love for his son, which is slowly kind of melting away to something much more full of rage and, and terror, you know, at the, the, what, what has he let into his house? And is it his son anymore? The idea that this guy, this Andy character is, you know, he's not a monster or a vampire or a zombie in the, in the sense that he seems to just have this bloodlust, which is something unto itself. It seems that he, he just has to do it as a matter of course in order to survive. He's not really where he belongs because he belongs in the grave, right? So there's something kind of moving and very sad about this displacement, this sort of soured innocence. Yeah, and, and, and the notion that his suffering continues and his suffering will necessitate the suffering of everyone around him as well. Like the, the toll of war in a very literal sense, the bloodshed of war is brought home because it seems that in order not to decay, basically, uh, he has to get, you know, fresh blood injections <laughs> or, or infusions from the living. It doesn't end when they come home. Whenever I think of like any war that involves hundreds of thousands of people or, or millions of people, I just have to think of what it was like for all of them coming home. I, I, you know, sometimes I think about like after World War One, you would have had hundreds of thousands of people coming back just completely devastated and maimed, you know, World War Two, And then, of course, you have Vietnam War. Um, I got a little broad there. Sorry. No, but it kind of speaks to the what the neighbor says, doesn't it? When the neighbor comes over and he's sort of cluelessly talking about how proud he was to have fought in the second world war and his own experiences in the second world war. And it really rattles Andy, the the main undead <laughs> character, <laughs> even though he doesn't seem particularly, you know, he's quite stone faced, but there's some, there's a real reaction in him when his neighbor starts talking about, you know, his experience of the war. And it, it sort of implies the generation gap between the understanding of what that war was and the idea of the moral righteousness behind the Second right. World War and the fact that the children of these guys went into Vietnam, I think, or many of them went in expecting something similarly black and white, mm -hmm. when, of course, the reality was was nothing but. Yeah, I know. I'm so glad, so glad you singled out that scene. I think part of why that's effective in the movie is just that all the different scenes in the film, I mean, parts of the town, they, they all feel pretty lived in. I mean, I, I mean, it's not exactly in the town, but the diner, which is where we first see him returning. I just love those kind of, those kind of moments there where you have the waitress kind of runs the, the front of the restaurant and, and the cook in the back, the banter they have. That all just felt just kind of slice of life in this kind of road stop. And it didn't feel like they were ordinary I, I think in horror movies, as that became just the trope, you know, here is just a small town and then something awful happens. I think the portraits of those kind of figures and characters just became maybe a bit more formulaic. But I think there's some sort of sweet spot here where it just felt real and, and they don't feel disposable. And that's what makes it all a little scarier and not just scary, but just also moving the impact on on the town. Yeah. I think that it is interesting rather than having just like disposable, naive suburban folks to be brutalized by this zombie. It's like each even minor character is really built out in a way where you can see how they fit into the equation of Andy's past life. And so each time you see, you know, his parents bring him to meet a new person that once had a connection to Andy. It's like you're like at the edge of your seat because you're like, how is Andy going to react to this person that's usually greeting him in like a friendly 
way. You know, at one point, John Marley brings out the group of neighborhood kids, and it's like presumed that they all, in a sense, worshipped Andy and saw him as this role model. And Andy <laughs> is stone-faced and ends up this isn't really a spoiler because it's on the image that the Criterion channel uses for the movie, but he <laughs> so ends horrifying. up choking this little dog. <laughs> it's terrifying. Just like, it's <laughs> absolutely terrifying. And you see these kids like shaking in their boots, like what? They just see their hero completely transforming before their eyes. And it's absolutely devastating. It also begs the question, what was this person like before? Yes. You know, because we don't get a chance to see that at all. And we have to guess it, who, who mm. he was. But like, you yes. know, when he says, oh, you used to love that dog or something, you know. Right. He used to also love a girl. And, you know, there's mm. this like past girlfriend character that comes in and she has a really you know, small but very meaty role where she's so excited because she thinks Andy's gone. But, you know, then there's a surprise that he's actually returned and like she greets him and it's just like, who is this person? He's terrifying. And that, again, doesn't seem too far removed from somebody who would just have really bad PTSD. Exactly. It's also not that people are unaware that it's going to be a little traumatic to welcome someone back. It's also just seeing them let down their defenses, you know, because that's something they include in the movie. And and especially with, with his girlfriend there, she had already been trying to kind of, you know, push it aside and busy herself with work and whatever else. And, Part of what is yeah, just so poignant is 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 watching as she, they're joking, they're joking around. Oh, you got we have a blind date for you, and she's like, oh, you know, I don't want you guys. Oh, you guys, and and then slowly, slowly, she's she's trying to let herself allow herself, and then that makes it all the more unsettling when they when they finally do meet, and <laughs> this leads all into just the proverbial date from hell where they go to a drive-in. And at that point, Andy has begun to rot and he like puts on this outfit that makes him look like some sort of like German techno artist. <laughs> yeah, when, when he comes down the stairs, I, I was like, is this is this, this really about like the, the early arrival of punk and post-punk into the American home? I don't know. <laughs> Quite cool, actually. <laughs> I know. So that's that's uh, Death Dream. I think, Christina, you mentioned also in regard to Vietnam on screen, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I guess I would, would say, and I know this is at risk of, of making me sound like an asshole, but I, I really do think it's one of the best Vietnam films ever made. I mean, it just really gets into this idea of the American heartland as, as being kind of sick-souled in a way. It's, um, you know, the, the family home is the site of untold horror whilst you know externally looking very clean and nice and lovely front porch as the leatherface family home does when the kids first approach it and you know the idea that these were once slaughterhouse workers whose circumstances kind of turn them into monsters lead to their moral degradation and for me especially those famous last images of leatherface sort of swinging the the chainsaw around are, you know, pretty representative of this idea of American brute force, of American, you know, trying to pulverize these innocents, in a sense, w- you know, with with all the application of power. 
that's possible, even beyond the point where there's nothing really left to destroy. You just got one screaming, traumatized girl. And uh, that felt very indicative of something about American behavior abroad in some ways. And for pure visceral force as well, it's just a terrifying film. It is absolutely terrifying. And I think it's ironic that I think I read somewhere, you know, a reading of the film sees the, you know, the main cast of kids slash victims as, you know, Vietnam War draft escapees, and they're ironically slaughtered by this bastard version of the nuclear family. If you like consider the dinner scene, you know, with the father, grandpa, the hitchhiker being this disturbed teenager, and then cross-dressing Leatherface as the mother. <laughs> but it's it's really a remarkable movie. And actually, I consider it one of my favorites ever, <laughs> just mm-hmm. because of, honestly, just the power of that final shot. Leatherface swinging his chainsaw around, which I really can't even entirely articulate why it's so terrifying. But it's like, you know, there's something majestic and violent and Uh, It's just so unnerving about it. And, you know, it's a film that never leaves my mind. Yeah, the fact that it's aestheticized in a way, (laughs) you know, the beautiful sky behind him. Mm. Um, But also just for pure chasing, like a foot chase. The last portion where he's chasing Marilyn Burns with the chainsaw and he seems to keep getting closer and then further away and closer and then further away. And that to me, like, I feel like my whole body can't unclench when I'm watching it. <laughs> like, oh, it's just like, I can't unclench my hands from the seat sort of thing. Yes. And I often also think of the meat hook scene when at one point Leatherface, you know, grabs one of the female victims and he just places her on a meat hook. And, yeah. you know, you don't really see like, you know, the insertion or anything too graphic but you like feel it and you hear it just like the act of being placed on a meat hook and like just having your body dangle there is so visceral. Bones and gristle and like yeah. the, smell of, <laughs> the smell of death all over that mm. film. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to imagine something like seven or, you know, any number of highly aestheticized movies about violence existing without that movie. I, I was just looking up the cinematographer, uh, Daniel Pearl, and this is the first film he shot, ah, which damn. seems kind of incredible just because the, the control of just color and composition, everything is, is amazing. And it seems that he just sort of made music videos for, for a lot of his career, which I kind of love. I feel like there are a lot of hidden and not so hidden technicians at work in, in these movies. What's amazing about a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it really doesn't matter how much you've seen or read about it, it's still so unsettling. Well, you know, this might be a good point to kind of segue a bit to the idea of, you know, who's being shown in, in the films. I think there's a new interest in, in the blue-collar man in particular, whether that's sort of across things like Saturday Night Fever all the way through to, to horror, to The Hills Have Eyes. Um, which sounds like maybe a weird comparison, but you're you know comparing urban working class masculinity with dispossessed southern rural um, working class masculinity. They are different in many ways, but the concern with class seems to be a little bit more omnipresent in '70s American films generally. And I think, I mean, the whole Robin Wood 
theorizing about how he turned poor people in the South into the other, into the monster, makes the rest of the country feel better about their own issues. It's definitely a way to, you know, it's a way to pump the brakes on feeling bad about other national wounds that are definitely endemic to more than just the poor South. I, you know, you brought up masculinity. I, I was just thinking about that in, in Death Dream as well, because he's coming back. He should be in, feeling maybe some of the glory, uh, but it's not a war that really turned out to be glorious for anyone involved. He's just, he's just like this hunk of, of, of meat that can only just feed on other people. Yeah, I think that's interesting how this sort of degraded idea of, you know, masculinity compared to the strapping masculinity of what you would once think of when you think of a soldier, maybe in like World War II and whatnot, how this kind of ties in to, you know, how many of these filmmakers in the 70s were telling stories about, you know, whatever was left of the American dream and the hippie movement and all that, and how something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and what you guys are calling a redneck menace, for me, it conjures the idea of a world that is, you know, filled with dead ends, dried up creeks, dead industries with workers that, you know, are kind of useless at this point and, you know, outdated modes of existence that are incapable of changing. And it's all just kind of laid bare in this wasteland. It's all, to me, tied to this apocalyptic mindset. Yeah, I think apocalyptic is such a great word for it, because it does have that, that wonderful 70s fatalism. But it often just feels like a, you know, there's a device in order to further terrify the audience. It doesn't seem to have the same kind of deep vein of genuine despair that something like the crazies does. Or something like that. Death Dream even has that. The, the last lines of that film are really actually quite heartrending. Mm, yeah. Yeah, The Crazies is a movie that really shook me up because it's just nonstop picture of things falling apart. Maybe this is why I struck home, being that we are currently in a terrible national crisis involving, <laughs> involving an ep- epidemic, a pandemic. The plot of the crazies is basically in a town, somehow a deadly virus has gotten loose that turns people, I have to say the title is not the strong point of this movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like, come on, you know, could do a little better than that. But uh, it, it drives people crazy, this virus, and turns them sometimes just into kind of rage machines. Uh, and it also just generally just seems to make you deteriorate. It go, go berserk. It turns you into a little American berserk. And what happens is the whole town is shut down and quarantined and hazmat suits, all of this. And Romero just films it at like a total run. The organizational, the logistics of it, none of it is, is, is working out. And people who are in charge are barely on top of things. Petty egos are getting in the way and, and, and all of that. And meanwhile, our identifying characters are just on the run trying to survive by avoiding the quarantine they know is not actually in their interests uh, anyway. Yeah, speaking of apocalyptic breakdown, just chaos. Yeah, it's like frenetically paced to the extent that it's that it's sort of, it can be quite difficult sometimes to keep up with exactly. And I think this is you know quite, quite intentional who is infected and who isn't, um, who is just behaving through 
the idea of fear being infectious through hysteria as a response to you know people mm. turning into homicidal maniacs because of this bioweapon. Yeah. It's not entirely... It's one of those horror movies where it just it just sort of lingers on and, and it's it doesn't necessarily feel like a gambit that it kind of lingers... Like, you watch a movie like It's Alive. By the end, you're like, okay, so he wants to make another movie. In this case, it's more just... It's left open-ended and ragged, like tearing a sheet of paper off. Of, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not... It's just like... It just stopped because what more are you going to show? Yeah, there's this extreme hopelessness to the movie that's exacerbated by this style of extremely rapid editing that kind of puts you in this state of panic. I mean, you know, I guess you're meant to sympathize or like take the point of view of the confused citizens. But, you know, even then, it's like both parties how do I wear this? There's like a blunt animalistic stupidity to all of it. (laughs) That is just like, you know, even the government is kind of laying waste to these people and hazmat shoots kind of messily shooting civilians because they can't tell the difference who's insane and who's not, you know, the citizens themselves are just kind of aimlessly running to like where, like who knows where or where can safety be found rather it's it's all very panic inducing and and hopeless and it you know as such it also feels very timely just the idea of a virus that can't be seen and people acting very incompetently you know both the government and the potential infectees it's it's a terrifying film that feels you know very that feels even more relevant today <laughs> the people in hazmat suits, I, I just wanted to mention one other detail, which is that they're even like looting the dead uh, and are, are looting what's left behind. I mean, they're, they're like rifling through wallets and that sort of thing. So there's, you know, there's, there's no sense of, again, like the government's going to take care of it or, or protect you or something, or that even it's like the people who have been recruited for these hazmat operations are, are not, they could be anyone. Yeah, they could be anyone, and and they don't. They they seem to have given up uh, any yeah. and all morals themselves. They're very very terribly trained, <laughs> and <laughs> I think in the end, you know, one of the main uh, characters, the one of the citizens who kind of takes arms against the government. I mean, he puts on the hazmat suit, and you know, he could have just very well been one of the soldiers, and. You know, so the lines are really blurred in a way that is is interesting. Yeah, I think that sense of ambiguity of whose side you're supposed to take is definitely there. And and with Romero, you always know that this is somebody that's anti-authority, sort of down to his to his bones. And it's hard not to see the especially the riot towards the end, and you know, the the military just sort of shooting people down indiscriminately feels really reflective of what was happening with the domestic turbulence in America, the anti-war protests and riots. Yeah. Well, I think there are maybe just a couple of movies, other movies I wanted to cover as well. I mean, one filmmaker who I want to just spotlight because I think she's so completely aware of the kind of genre film that she's supposed to be making and she does deliver, but is also along the way kind of commenting on it and making um, choices along the way that, that are, are also 
a little counter countercultural, and that movie is is Velvet Vampire. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Velvet Vampire. So this is a 1971 movie by Stephanie Rothman, who uh, was an assistant to Roger Corman and had made, you know, a bunch of these sorts of exploitation films, her most famous of which is The Velvet Vampire. But like other erotic vampire movies of the period, um, Daughters of Darkness is also 1971. And it kind of exists in a no man's land between art house sensibilities and, you know, the more straightforward grindhousey exploitation fare. Um, so there's not really much in terms of plotting or action. It's more about the sort of viscous psychosexual atmosphere. And so, you know, the story is about a couple, uh, this young couple, and uh, they meet this elegant vampire who invites them to her home out in the desert. It's suggested that, you know, she wants to have some sort of menage a trois with them, though it's kind of ambiguous, honestly. The the wife in the equation doesn't want to see her husband mingling with this other woman. And yet it's also very plainly obvious that's what they're going to do when they travel out to the middle of nowhere to stay at her place for a weekend. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful film. It's, you know, it has all of the elegance, grace and sensuality that you would think of when, you know, you think of a vampire movie set in this period but you know there's this undercurrent of like dreamy carnal desire and like this sort of animalistic violence that is you know these dual qualities are kind of embodied in the titular velvet vampire so it's a really entrancing film it's you know as i said set in i think California desert, you know, some sort of like Palm Springs type offshoot. I mean, what did you think, Nick? <laughs> I love the desert. No, I, I, um, I <laughs> like the desert. All right. I no, it's, I just thought it was a, a clever movie um, and her, her visual sense is just so right, right on. And, and just this little lingering sense of a kind of knowingness that's never too much. And just the, the cast and these characters, just this kind of hopeless beefcake who's the boyfriend, <laughs> hopeless and just hapless beefcake. Um, and then, then his girlfriend who actually just kind of looks like worried uh, all the time and just is, looks always ready to be disappointed somehow. Uh, and of course, that's what's going to happen when the boyfriend is so open about his... <laughs> His, uh, his weekend plans for him. His desire. His desire, yes. yeah. Desire already as a word just sounds like it's too exotic for him. He just, he's just such That's a That's true. He's just, <laughs> he's just like a bro that like wants yeah. to get it in. <laughs> yeah. I, and, you know, they have this incredible flirtatious dialogue between the vampire whose name is Diane. Maybe it's a reference to Diane of the Huntress. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so Diane, the va- their vampire host, um, my name is Diane, your vampire host. Um, they have this flirtatious dialogue about dune the buggies. Buggy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, dune buggies. Wait, I had to ask myself, whatever happened to dune buggies? 
you know. Well, um, <laughs> as a flirtatious device or just in just in general, <laughs> they they're like at dinner, and his wife is right there watching this conversation, and they're just like talking about what they're gonna do to each other, but through like dune buggy puns. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is old. Sold. I have to see this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very funny uh, sequence, uh, and I mean, I, you know, they, they they have some good dune buggy uh, dune buggy footage um, driving in the dunes. Um, I, there's, yeah, there's just a whole kind of running comic strain where she's just kind of this lady who lives out in the desert, and she's like, "That's how things are in the desert," uh, and you feel like anything could happen. And she'd just say, "That's just the desert way." Um, and, you know, and then meanwhile, yeah, she's just kind of killing people or digging people up or half burying people. Um, and just the level of credulousness is, is part of the comedy of it. But there are these just, you know, indelible images she comes up with. I, I, I generally my jaw dropped when, uh, she begins this dream sequence Diane, the vampire, uh, she has a one-way mirror onto their bedroom, so she makes sure they. She somehow is able to make them dream, uh, and what they control dream, their dreams, control yeah. their dreams, and she kind of implants a dream that takes place on a bed in the middle of a desert, um, and in which she's, you know, she's coming to take uh, the beefcake away, um, and but the fir- the opening of that sequence is her kind of appearing in front of a mirror and she's wearing this kind of flowing red uh, robe and uh, and there's just it's just a lucid like eyes wide open because it's desert sun uh, lighting it uh, image um, it actually kind of reminded me I was I was just looking up um, Fata Morgana which is this strange Herzog documentary that came out the same year uh, which also kind of trades on this very exoticizing um, you know desert imagery hallucinogenic basically um in its in its total lucidity but also just kind of mind-altering barrenness um and starkness um so i i I don't know i don't know what was in the air i guess you had zabriskie point before then um something about deserts um so yeah that's that's everything's just very clean i mean the movie i think is 80 minutes or i think it's just 80 minutes and just yeah it's under 90 90 (laughs) Um, and I just love the way it begins and ends. Uh, it begins with um, the van- Diane in looks like a deserted downtown, basically, where she's, she's kind of she's going to be assaulted by a, a biker. Uh, it's almost like she's attacked from like an older exploitation film star, um, and and then I don't know. She's just very ready to to kill him. Um, <laughs> That's effective scene because it's also fear in a public place, which I think is always a bit more terrifying somehow. Um, and that's bookended by the end where then as the vampire, she's chasing the a girlfriend character through a public place. Yeah, she seems to represent, I mean, like she essentially breaks up this marriage by manipulating their dreams into... I think the way they phrase it is in the dream and and they're both dreaming the same thing, which is something that makes them realize that something's not right here, but you know, he dreams that they're in the desert and she's pushing him away and she dreams that they're in bed together and someone is pulling him away. So it's sort of breaking down their relationship and inserting this 
suave, sensual, mysterious woman who is also very self-assured and confident and mysterious. And, you know, as we see in the beginning, you know, capable of fending off any challengers that are unwanted. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a film that I have to sit with for a while because, you know, so much of the power just kind of lies in these enigmatic images. Mm, yeah. And that's The Velvet Vampire, actually not in the 70s horror collection. It's in another collection on the Criterion Channel, but I think you, you basically pointing that out, you, you kind of I curated that into the 70s Yeah, I think the collection is like women filmmakers of a Roger Corman supported mm-hmm. like independent production company that had female filmmakers like Stephanie Rothman making these sorts of exploitation films. Yeah, I think The Student Nurses is another um, another big movie for her. And I, I remember these two or three of these were shown at Anthology like a number of years ago something of a discovery for a lot of people. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the Velvet Vampire. Um, well, we should probably wrap up, I guess. Uh, what, is there any one final film maybe you want to bring up? Yeah, did you guys both watch uh, Deathline or Raw Meat from the Criterion 70s? Yeah, I, I did. I, I liked it a lot. Well, the title's misleading, isn't it? Especially raw meat, because <laughs> that makes it sound, you know, a lot trashier than what it is, actually, I think. Um, and my husband had seen it before me, and when I went to turn it on, he you know, he said, oh, it's about cannibals living in the, in the London Underground, in the tube. And my mind immediately went to, like, you know, uh, more contemporary films with these subterranean creatures uh, in them, things like The Descent, which... It's a very particular kind of monster movie. And it's really very scary, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. it's not that film at all. It's, you know, to me, it's a film that really takes on as its thesis, urban loneliness and what exists under the seams of a city. Uh, you know, people who are on the tube late at night who could be captured by these creatures uh, which actually, as it turns out, aren't really creatures at all. But uh, but the descendants of some, I guess, miners or people who are working to build the tube years and years mm-hmm. ago, uh, and then were trapped down there, and then I guess had had descendants who are essentially these kind of degraded mole people who live by um, preying on late night stragglers off the Russell, I think it's the Russell Square tube station. <laughs> is really kind of horrifying but yeah so they are kind of they're actually quite sympathetic in in some ways and the the main creature uh man creature whatever he is uh is you know he's totally inarticulate he can only communicate through grunts and groans it's it's kind of pitiful it's sort of like a frankenstein's monster thing you know there's not a lot of catharsis in seeing seeing something you know happen or 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 seeing this monster destroyed, I guess. Uh, yeah. So it's an unexpected kind of wrong-footing film. Yeah. The only thing he can say, he just keeps repeating, mind the doors. Um, <laughs> he's learned. Yeah, he's learned. That. <laughs> he's, that's the only phrase he's learned. You see him doting on his mole wife, uh, who, <laughs> who is ailing. 
and is is just is a uh, pregnant and you know he wants to take care of her the only way he knows how which of course is by seeking out and finding fresh meat raw meat this is one thing though uh that confused me about the movie although maybe this is just their their human condition or underground human condition they can get out to get on the platform but they've never left the station yeah, that's a good point. So they, they their whole they were all buried alive, but then eventually they were able to come out and but they still just kind of don't range it's far like afield. Not to, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the light hurt their eyes after all those years. I Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, that did that did kind of nag nag at me. Um, <laughs> but then maybe the scientists because they have a, they have, you know, another scientist figure who's kind of explaining it. And he's he's explaining it just kind of in an offhand manner and seems to keep keep getting interrupted by you know, Donald Pleasance, who's a the just amazing um, performance as, as a police, sarcastic police detective, just oh, kind of yeah. always blowing his nose too and just putting everyone down. <laughs> Stubborn and mouthy and yeah, he's he's really great. He's, he's excellent. I also love that Christopher Lee is in this film, but just in a very like small role. Um, yeah. And apparently I read that the reason that Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee weren't in any of the same scenes together is because there was a huge height difference between them. And I guess <laughs> someone or another was unhappy about this. So. Oh, God. That, that, that would have actually worked, though, I think, because, you know, just because um, Christopher Lee plays like this representative of MI5, I guess, who is, wants to take over the investigation of one of the victims of the of the mole man um and you're gonna have to stop calling him the mole man i love it now that you now that you started saying it i can't i can't stop saying mole man um but yeah he's he's terrific he just has this penetrating gaze and impossible hauteur uh, actually this victim who's like a is he like a, someone who's been knighted or they yeah, OBE. So OBE. He's, he's been important. He's you know it, tangentially related to the to the parliament, I think, or something. Yeah, he's like the first. I guess the first victim we, we see, and we first see him at like Soho peep shows. Um, so he obviously kind of keeps busy. Uh, and then when they investigate his apartment, they find out he has a secret room with what was like a pretty early innovation, I think, of like a video link up to his bedroom so he could spy on, I guess, people he would... This is just like a character who's get killed. It could be a whole other movie. Yeah, that's a curious uh, excursion into some uh, completely different territory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it interested me because, you know, I think that was another way in which the movie shows that the, the people who live underground, you know, they show them living in what are these look like these really dated quarters. It's almost like they're living, they're living like on straw from like the 19th century. It's like a stable <laughs> underground basically. And so you think, Oh, they're like living in the walls, but then you show this MP and he also has like a room of the walls. I was just going to say that there seems to be a recurring theme of the ways in which we misunderstand one another and how tragic that can turn out to be even from um, you know, the opening scene where this young couple find this man who will eventually disappear, uh, passed out. I can't tell if he's dying, if he's diabetic, if he's drunk uh, on the subway, uh, the tube steps. And the girlfriend wants to call the police immediately. And the boyfriend, who's who's American, actually, is like, you know, just step over the guy, like really blasé about it. Yeah. Uh, 
And then they finally go up to get, you know, go get the police, uh, you know, after a lot of convincing from the girlfriend, come back and he's gone because, of course, the, the mole man took him. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's this there's this idea of like a certain callousness towards one another and a certain misunderstanding towards one another, which, you know, comes again between Donald Pleasance, the cop and this young couple who he immediately mm. sees as suspect because they lived together before marriage and they're a little hippie-ish and the guy has long hair and he tells him to cut his hair at one point so you know misunderstandings abound and the results are very bad yeah yeah there's also a bit of culture clash well i like the london new york comparison where uh yeah the guy is saying yeah i stepped over him you see that all the time in new york just people lying on the ground um and i felt terrible that i, I recognized that statement um <laughs> and you know, the, the London detectives like, what are you talking about? You know, but yeah, their their relationship is like another kind of nice little emotional drama in in, in one of these movies. Um, they, they immediately have a, a spat. His girlfriend moves out over his callous treatment of the body on the ground in the subway. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it it often feels like, particularly in horror films uh, and uh, films from this era, that the overly sympathetic mewling girlfriend can be a really like horrible cliche hmm. and you know trust trust the reasonable man who has a bit more sense and this girl is just being silly when in fact actually she she's the right one and she's right to actually have compassion for this mole man up to a point and she even asks towards the end of the film you know towards the climax of the film for her boyfriend not to hurt this man even though he's attacked her so yeah that's kind of interesting that it seems to side with her in some ways yeah, I think it does. Yeah, she's she's clearly uh, right, and she's like the voice of humanity, basically. I just want to just mention a quick other word about the cinematography in this film is is is, is really beautiful. The, the shots of the underground, they they make the most of the the old tunnels, uh, not just subway tunnels, but just this, these kind of arcing arched tunnels uh, where the the underground persons live, and sometimes the very minimal lighting uh, so you get really an intense feeling of the shadows and just the browns and grays and they're they really look like they're things that could have been painted with just a candlelight source or something mm, it's really beautifully muted isn't it yeah yeah I, so i thought that was good and then i liked also just the production design of like the ordinary locales whether it's the police station um, or the studio that they share uh, I just liked all the little knickknacks and, you know, there's a Hendrix poster or something. I think uh, it's a film that has loads of small touches in terms of character, writing, performance, particularly with Donald Pleasance. And as you said, sort of the look of the film, you know, one one amazing shot where they're waiting for the cops to come down, down this very long arched sort of uh, tunnel underground with flashlights and it's really just the flashlights and they hold the shot quite static for a you know a longer period of time than you would probably expect Mm. and i you know it kind of ratcheting up the tension of of the couple waiting for the cops to come back and tell them what they found uh in this horrible den of like you know cannibals and and i think that's really great so you have all these great touches do i think the film is like you know perfect does it hang together perfectly no but i like i liked it a lot i thought you know i think it's worth seeing yeah. Uh, it also has Norman Rossington, uh, who I still associate most with The Hard Day's Night. Oh, I knew I recognized him. As, as yeah, the, the sergeant. 
uh, that mm -hmm. works with the, the inspector. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, Deathline, aka uh, Raw Meat. So many of these films have two titles. <laughs> I know. It's but yeah, you can sort of sense someone like, how are we going to make this sell? How are we going to sell this? You know, what's going to get people, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a product of them straddling this, you know, at the time, the sort of trashy drive-in demand for exploitation fare with, you know, the clear artistry that I'm sure the people behind it were actually thinking of, a, a pride in the, the title they might have invented versus something that seems just more schlocky and or typical of that sort of film. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, this is the Criterion Channel uh, 70s horror section with also guest starring uh, The Velvet Vampire. But there's plenty else out there to, to, to watch. Thank you both for, for taking the time to, to talk about these. I hope we can uh, talk again. No problem. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. For a list of the movies discussed in this episode and other writing, sign up for my newsletter at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.